The following is a sermon from the pulpit ministry of the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, the New Testament reading from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15. Uh, we'll be looking back to chapter 3 of Genesis as well, but uh, a little bit later on. Mark chapter 15, you can find that on page 852. Of your Pew Bible. Mark chapter fifteen, starting in verse sixteen through verse twenty. Hear the word of God. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our God abides forever and ever. Uh, Do keep your Bible there, and if you want to Put a finger in Genesis 3. We'll be turning there in just a few uh, moments, but just maybe by a word of introduction, a personal word even. Uh, In my life as a Christian believer, what has brought the most growth in my life and what has contributed to the most affection for Jesus in my life has been the sincere reflection on the sufferings of Jesus. And I think that many of you would say the same thing, that as you think about the Lord Jesus, there's nothing quite that draws out your heart to love Him than than your earnest reflection on the thing that we're gathering to remember tonight, His his passion, His suffering and death for our sake. And, And we call that atonement. That's the word that we use to describe what Jesus has done for us. He has atoned for our sins, which means that He's paid for them. And that's, that's nomenclature, that's vocabulary that we pick up as Christians and we use even frequently. Jesus died for my sins. He paid for my sins. We're comfortable saying that. And it rolls off the tongue and we're aware of that even intellectually. Uh, but it is the, the, the quiet, sincere reflection on the infinite depth of meaning in those words. That... Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son, took on flesh so that He might die for me, for you. Again, that's something that we can say, but that is also a truth that is of infinite value. A well of truth so deep you will never be able to see the bottom of it. And so what I want to do tonight is kind of gather our thoughts around 
the crown that Jesus wore. See that in verse 17. I want to think about the crown that was forced upon the head of our Lord Jesus. And if you need a visual, of course, you've got one there on the front of your bulletin. As we think about the crown that our Lord Jesus wore at his crucifixion, I think it's very obvious and recognizable to us in the narrative, remembering that Jesus received this crown and it was forced upon his head as a, as a symbol of mockery. But as I've been reflecting on this, and I hope to gather some thoughts and we look at the scriptures together, what the Roman soldiers did not know, and in fact what the Roman soldiers could have never known, was that the action that they were doing in mockery was actually a very vivid picture of the fulfillment of the eternal purposes of the Father to accomplish our salvation. This crown of thorns that Jesus wore is then deeply significant. And I want to think about why that is. Why this crown? Why why this cursed crown of the Lord Jesus? So if you're able... In your mind, as you see the scriptures, as we recite together the narrative from John, as we read it in Mark, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of visual things that come to mind. But if you're able, what I want to encourage you to do is actually to, to, to put aside the understandably emotional response to the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus. We think about him and we think about his suffering and perhaps you've seen at varied points in your life, uh, you know, replays, movies, plays, dramas that, that you have visual images that you associate with the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus that elicit an emotional response. And, and it makes sense that we would have an emotional response. But what I want to ask you to do is, is just put that aside for now. Because there's, there's really a difficulty if we only stay in that spot of emotional response, because we see physical suffering, we feel emotion, but there's no way, there's no way, friends, that, that our imagination could possibly comprehend. The physicality of the sufferings, that's one thing. But the spiritual sufferings of the Lord Jesus is something that we simply can't fully wrap our minds around and no amount of physical images or emotional responses will be able to get us to that point to really understand what is happening to the Lord Jesus on Friday. We have to search the scriptures and, and get a sense of why is he here and what is he doing? The Lord Jesus is not some kind of passive, helpless victim. He is doing this on purpose. He is allowing this to be done to him on purpose. And so don't feel sorry for Jesus. In fact, uh, one of the things that Jesus says to the women that were watching, he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. If that's a theme that I want to explore some other year, but uh, don't weep for the emotion of Jesus. Weep for your sins that he's here. And why is he here? 
In order to understand this, in order to understand the, the reason why Jesus is suffering here, we have to look again beyond the emotional illicit response of the physical sufferings of Jesus and spiritually ask the question, why is Jesus here? And in order to understand that, we've got to go back, way back, even into the book of Genesis. And so please do go back there with me to Genesis 3, which is such an important chapter. Keep something there in Mark, because we'll be coming back to it, of course. But we have to go back to Genesis 3. We've got to look beyond, again, the physical suffering sufferings of Jesus and spiritually ask the question, why is this necessary? Of course, Genesis 3, hopefully you know, is, is so foundational to the unfolding narrative of the Bible. Nothing in the Bible makes sense without what happens in Genesis 3 becoming a strong reality, creating a need. Of course, Genesis 3 is the narrative of the fall. But what I want us to see here in Genesis 3 is that Adam's sin brings a curse upon himself and all creation. That's the big point of chapter 3 and this first point. I want us to see very clearly that Adam's sin brings God's curse upon himself and all creation. So... Just remind yourself of what you're looking at there in Genesis 3. Of course, God has already given the command to Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a clear instruction from chapter 2. But in the first seven verses of chapter 3, you have the interchange between the serpent and Eve, questioning God's word. Did God really say? Undermining the authority of God's command and creating in Eve a sense of doubt that God was restricting her from what was best for her and encouraging her to reach out and obedience and take the fruit, rejecting the command of God. And we know, of course, that's exactly what happens. Eve is deceived and Adam along with her and they eat of the fruit. And then in verses 8 through 13, Adam and Eve are confronted in their sin by the Lord God who seeks them out. And uh, of course, they're hiding and we're familiar with that. God calls them out of their sins But then beginning in verse 14, on through verse 19, God issues a number of curses. And those curses are issued to the serpent, to Eve, to Adam, and all creation with him. So, starting in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust And to dust you shall return. So notice in verse 17, 
that when the curse turns to Adam after the serpent and to Eve, the curse turns to Adam, but Adam's curse also extends to the rest of all creation. In verse 17, towards the very end, cursed is the ground because of you. And specifically notice in verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So through Adam, creation has sinned against its creator. And this world that God has made, which was intended to be a sphere of blessing, the very ground that Adam was formed out of is cursed and turned into a harsh and thorny sphere. Again, the ground is cursed because of Adam. The earth itself is cursed. You should ask the question, why? Uh, What did the ground do to deserve that? But notice all the way back in chapter 2 and verse 7, the earth is cursed because it was from the earth that Adam was formed. And so from this earth, God drew up the dust and breathed life in it and Adam became a living being. And this being, this created being has sinned against its maker. And so humanity is cursed as well as the ground, the very dust from which this man has come. And God says, it is all cursed. That Adam's sin brought God's curse upon himself and all creation. That Adam, with all humanity and the rest of creation, the earth itself, is cursed. Now, for a very quick application of that, you should, as a Christian believer, never have to wander very far away from Genesis 3 when you start asking yourself the question, why in this world does this happen, that happen. You fill in the blank of whatever evil that wells up in your soul and causes you such distress. There is death in the world because of sin. There is evil in the world because of sin. The Bible paints a very clear picture of that, that sin is in the world because of human rebellion and humanity and the earth is cursed Because of it, creation itself bears the weight of the curse of sin. And one of the signs, one of the symbols, one of the visual representations that this world is cursed, again, comes from verse 18, where we see that there are thorns on the earth. Thorns on the earth. So, the second thing that we need to understand here is that thorns, as we think about this crown, thorns are a symbolic picture of, of the curse of God upon the earth and even the whole world. Thorns are the symbolic representative of this curse. Now, think about the fact that if Adam had not sinned, he would have remained in the garden and cultivated the fruits of righteousness in the garden without strife or struggle or pain. But now, because of sin, mankind struggles under the strife of these thorns. A couple of weeks ago when I was in San Antonio, I was talking to a rancher who has 90,000 acres of a cattle ranch. And he can't put a shovel in the ground anywhere without it hitting solid rock. Now, you think about that, we're blessed with a certain amount of wonderful soil here. But think of this, this picture that the Bible is painting here of toilsome labor in the ground that fights against the labor. The ground doesn't want to be worked because it's rebelling against the man from whom it was brought forth. 
It's an agricultural picture, of course, but it also, it could represent anything that you want in terms of the strife of your labors. So whether or not a agriculture metaphor hits home for you, uh, anything that involves the strife of work, ineffective tools, unreasonable supervisors, uncooperative co-workers, fill in the blank. The things that make labor toilsome, burdensome, and grievous to your existence are in the world because the earth is cursed. Thorns represented the fact that our labor was intended to be fulfilling. But now you have to choose to find fulfillment in labor because naturally we don't want to work. Naturally, we want it easy. Naturally, we don't want to have sweat on our brow and working hard. Look look again in verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, meaning you have to work hard for what you have rather than it just being handed to you till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken and you are dust and to dust you shall return. Burdensome labor. Again, thorny ground is a picture of the effects of sin in the world. Now just... Really quickly, there's a few places that, uh, that this really comes out in the Bible because thorns and thistles and brambles are actually a continual metaphor that God uses throughout the Bible to explain that his people, who he often calls a vineyard, the, the metaphor of a vineyard is used, especially throughout the Old Testament, to represent God's people. But when they are unfaithful and when they disobey God speaks of the vineyard becoming overtaken by thorns. Where it was supposed to bear fruit, rather than being pruned, it bears all these thorns and labor becomes toilsome. For example, in the prophet Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up, meaning thorns will overtake you because of your unfaithfulness. In fact, this whole imagery again of an unkept Vineyard represents an unfaithful people. In Jeremiah 12 and verse 13, it says that the people will sow wheat, but they'll only reap thorns because of their unfaithfulness. They'll think they're doing righteously by what they do in paving their own path. They'll sow wheat, but only reap thorns because of their disobedience. And thorns are also used in varied places throughout the Old Testament. Maybe you remember in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower. Remember, it was the seed that was scattered on thorny ground that gets choked out. Thorns represent the the choking out of the word of God in unfaithfulness. And in Hebrews chapter 4, or sorry, Hebrews 6, verse 7 and 8, it talks about the fact the land is going to be dried up with thorns and thistles as a sign of apostasy. So, altogether, in every place, the Bible speaks of thorns as representing the curse of sin and the effects of it and the unfaithfulness that sin brings into the life of God's people. So with that in mind, with the context of Genesis, with the picture of sin and unfaithfulness, we go back to Mark. We go back to our text in Mark. And we want to see Jesus as bearing a crown of thorns, not just as a victim. Jesus bore the crown of thorns even as he bore the curse of sin. Jesus bore the crown of thorns, even as he bore the curse of sin. So again, this scene that we're thinking of here, 
Verse 18, the soldiers lead him away inside a private governor's headquarters. A battalion is called together, some 700 soldiers as a Roman legion. All these soldiers are gathered together. And they place this crown upon Jesus' head. They pull together the crown of thorns and put it on him. Of course, it's a symbol of mockery. We understand that in verse 17. But then they taunt him, don't they, in verse 18? They, they salute him. They offer him this homage that is insincere. Verse 19, they strike his head. They spit on him. And they kneel down in a mocking homage to him. And verse 20 says, when they had mocked him completely, when they finished mocking him, they stripped him and put his own clothes on him and let him out to crucify him. But again, look, look beyond. Look beyond the physical sufferings and ask yourself, what's happening here? Beyond the scornful acts of these soldiers, the Father is working out His plan. The Father's perfect plan is being carried out. Remember that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says that the Son of Man has come to give His life as a ransom for many. And don't forget what Jesus says in John 10. Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. No one takes it from me, but I choose to lay it down. Jesus has come into the world to be the sin-bearing substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus wore the crown of thorns as representative of that He also is bearing the curse of sin. Jesus wore the crown of thorns, the crown of the curse, because Jesus is going to bear the curse of our sin on His own head even as he wore a crown that represented that curse. And of course the Romans don't know this. They would never process that. They don't believe the scriptures in the first place. But this crown is representative of the fact that Jesus is going to bear the curse of our sin. If you think about this picture... In the Old Testament, what would happen is that there would be animal sacrifices where the people would bring a lamb or a ram or a goat or a bull and the animal would be sacrificed. And usually what would happen is that one, one animal would be sacrificed and then the blood that was spilt would be splattered onto the other animal that was brought and the priest would lay his hands on the head of that live animal and confess the sins of Israel onto that animal as if to transfer the sins from Israel onto the animal. And then they would send that animal out into the wilderness, out of the camp, away, metaphorically representing the sending away of the sins of God's people as they were transferred onto the animal and it sent out. And after the blood had been shed and splattered on the animal and the animal sent away and the high priest coming out of the, the Holy of Holies, he would say to the people, the priest would lift his hands and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. You remember those words, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. And he could speak the blessing of God over the people because their sins had been covered. But here is Jesus, who is himself the sacrifice, 
who is himself bearing the crown that represents the curse. And it is as if he is the animal. And God the Father is laying his hands upon the Son. But rather than saying to the Son, the Lord bless you, it is as if the Father is saying, the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. Jesus. Jesus is cursed of God so that he can bear our curse. And because the father has laid the curse of sin upon his son... All who look to the Son, believing that that sacrifice indeed removes their curse, God can say to you, the Lord bless you. Be gracious to you. God the Father can be gracious to me, a sinner, because my sins were laid upon a substitute. And Jesus is that substitute. And so when we are looking by faith, at a thorn-crowned Messiah, we are looking to the one who has borne the curse for us. The curse of sin, the curse of creation, the curse of God upon his own head. And his crown testifies, not in mockery that the soldiers were giving him, but the crown testifies in truth that this is the Savior of the world. So, very quickly, three, three things to just take away from Jesus' crown of thorns. And I hope, you'll, I hope you'll think more of Jesus and his crown of thorns as you think of his victorious bearing of the curse of God on our behalf. The first thing is, is that Adam's sin, my sin and your sin, were laid upon Jesus even as the crown was laid upon Jesus' head. It takes a totally different tone when you are able to say with a certain degree of understanding, not just that Jesus died for sin, but that he died for my sin. It puts a certain strike of humility as we consider the mercy of Jesus Christ knowing all of our sins and failures and yet willingly going to the cross, bearing our sins so that we can sing, What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy pity. And vouchsafe to me thy grace. When you see Jesus bearing your own sin as he bears the crown, it becomes deeply meaningful. Not just that, but secondly, that the curse of sin has been broken by the power of Christ's blessing. 
The power of the curse has been broken by the power of Christ's blessing. Remember, we sing that at Christmas, don't we? He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Jesus enters into the world to reverse the curse and ushers in a new creation that will one day be perfected. But we're not there yet, right? We still live in a world of suffering. We still live in a world of sin. We still experience disobedience and we don't love him the way we we want to. But something's changed. He's ushered in that new creation. And one day it's going to be fully fully perfected, but not yet. Which is why, thirdly and finally, one of the marks of growing Christian maturity is to realize that because of the Lord Jesus and what he has done for me, and this is hard, this is hard to say because it hits home. Because of what the Lord Jesus has done for me, there is no amount of earthly suffering. There is no amount of earthly suffering that I should not be willing to bear for the sake of my Lord Jesus. And this world is full of suffering. Which is why he has come. To redeem that suffering so that it is filled with faith of a grander vision of a bigger purpose. Not meaningless suffering, but suffering in faith, trusting that because Jesus has walked the road to the cross, I will also bear a cross and suffer. And you ask yourself the question, is he worthy Is he worthy of my obedience and my suffering? All these things, I think, need to be on our minds. They need to be before us as we come to share in the Lord's Supper, where we remember, where we should rejoice and and say, maybe for the very, very first time, or perhaps with a refreshed sense of commitment and love for Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior! And be overwhelmed with thankfulness in our hearts for our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the consideration of the sufferings of your Son. We thank you that He was willing to bear the cross of our sins. We pray, Lord, that seeing him and his thorn-crowned head, that we would crown him in our hearts and exalt him and trust him and none other for all the hope of our salvation. Lord, we thank you that his faithfulness strengthens us to be faithful as well. Help us to see him tonight with a renewed love, a renewed commitment to obedience and a renewed sense to praise the glories of Christ crucified for our sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org or call our offices at 309-795-1713.